ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Now, those who forget the lessons of history are condemned to repeat them. That's one of the truisms we do hear a lot. Another is Mark Twain's immortal, history never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme. And in a way, both have motivated one of the world's most respected economic commentators, Martin Wolf, to reflect long and hard on the systems we live under, economic, social and political systems, and what they ask of us as citizens. The arrival of Donald Trump to the US, Boris Johnson to his own UK, and the seeming success of a range of autocratic leaders have worried him, particularly given his own family background, rooted in the upheavals of World War II. Have we forgotten, he asks in his new work, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, about the 1930s and about how societies can unravel. I'll let him explain why he's neither complacent nor despairing. Martin Wolf, welcome back to Saturday Extra. It's a great pleasure to be with you again. Martin, have we forgotten the essence of what split open European societies in the 30s? Do you really think that? No, I, I think we haven't, or at least a lot of us haven't. And of course, as the Mark Twain quote says, it's never quite the same. And what's happening now is obviously very different, and I discuss this in my book, from what happened in the 1930s. But I do think that with the passage of time and with the loss of fear, but also in a strange way, the loss of hope, the two coming together have made people who are angry, upset, worried, um, start thinking about the political system and what is legitimate and justified in ways that would have been unthinkable 40 or 50 years ago when the shadow of the Second World War and fascism was still so very much present in almost everybody's mind. So that, I think, is part of what we are now going through. Maybe you should sketch at this point the fate of your own family in the midst of all this, because it's clearly influenced you a lot. Yes, I think the core point that I would make, it's not in any way an original uh, point, and of course my own, our own experience is representative of many others in many different contexts, but the, the core point is my past has made me aware of the fragility of civilization in general and the fragility of democratic consensual political systems in particular. Um, My family were European Jews. My father grew up in Vienna and he was an Austrian writer and intellectual. My mother grew up in Holland, um, also Jewish. And of course, they witnessed the rise of Nazism in the 20s and 30s. And the striking thing about our family um, is that the immediate families of my parents and my parents themselves managed by a mixture of of judgment, forethought, uh, foresight, and, and the willingness to take determined actions, they survived. But their wider families, and they were very large, my mother's father was one of nine, um, they were all killed. I mean, just everybody. So my parents lived in England. They met only because of Hitler. It's inconceivable they would have ever met other, any other way. 
We had no relatives here. And most of their wider families, aunts, uncles, cousins, we think somewhere around 40 or so people, we don't know exactly, were killed. And of course, this is a shadow that a child could not possibly not observe, not realize there was something peculiar about us and about the story, which, of course, I learned more about mm. in the course of my life, particularly as I met one survivor of my father's family who, by a miracle, lived through the war. So, yes, this, this shapes my view that if you think things can't get worse, you can be very, very wrong. They can well, you make it clear that you consider anyone living under a sort of bounteous marriage of free market capitalism and liberal democracy is a very lucky person, that ever since the Industrial Revolution, this system has been better than anything else on offer. Do you think it's losing its way a little? Is that what's troubling you? In fact, you say it could be headed for divorce, this marriage. What are the prime reasons you say that? Well, the most important point is human societies this is so trivial, but we ignore it, are unimaginably complex systems. And they involve a marriage of social organization, political organization, and economic organization interacting uh, with one another. They are remarkably successful. I mean, the human species has for better or worse, taken over the entire planet, which shows that our ways of organizing ourselves are astoundingly successful in some ways, though this also creates big problems. But they do involve creating a productive and fruitful marriage of the social, political, and economic aspects of society. And the point I make in my book is that historically, in most highly organized societies, the structure was in a way very simple. The people in power, kings, aristocrats, controlled basically the most valuable resources, land, they controlled them by force, everybody else worked for them, and all political power and wealth merged. It was reasonably stable in the ancient Egypt. It lasted for thousands of years, but it wasn't very productive and it was pretty crushing for the vast majority of people. In the course of, this is terribly simple, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, we developed a new economic model based on individual enterprise, the rule of law, profound constraints on what rulers could do. And that created a completely new economic order, an order of rising prosperity, and a completely different social order, very complex interactions. Um, but increasingly, for reasons I go into, the demands for political participation from this economically increasingly liberated population, this more educated population that capitalism demanded, uh, an adaptable population, the demand from these people forced the rulers, who were no longer kings and aristocrats, but the relatively wealthy, to concede share in power, to allow democracy to emerge. And in democracy, wealth and power are not the same thing. And that was a revolutionary, but it's very, very fragile. And it can be broken down into autocracy on the one hand, demagogic autocracy, or back into oligarchy. And what are the problems with rentier capitalism that, like you've, you, you set out a range of issues that you think are making this rather fragile, this deal, and, and you, you have this phrase rentier capitalism. Why have you singled that out? 
in a way, one can think of it as going back to Adam Smith. Adam Smith was in favor of competitive capitalism, and he was very worried that the people with wealth, and he's very explicit about this, would rig the system in their favor. He was very worried about the emergence of powerful monopolies. And of course, there's a deeper element in that, which is that rents have always been a very important part of what generates wealth, above all, land rent. Now, I argue that over the last 30 or 40 years, partly because of changes in the way we think about competition and partly because of technological changes and partly because of social changes, uh, which have economic aspects above all the decline of the labor movement, we have allowed the emergence of, or perhaps even encouraged, of rentier forms of capitalism, by which I mean people have huge monopoly positions and huge monopoly profits. Um, people who extract wealth through financial engineering is, is another important example. Um, and these people have used their wealth to control and influence uh, uh, policy and politics. They buy politics and they buy media. And the result has been a shift to a less competitive and I think less dynamic and far more unequal form of capitalism. This is one of the reasons that the legitimacy of democracy and the belief in democracy has declined. You think we're at risk of creating a hereditary underclass and a hereditary superclass? I think that's very, very clear, and it's most obvious in the US. Now, of course, new people can break in. A lot of the great wealth is created by new people, so there's still genuine dynamism. But if you look at the big debates recently, for example, about affirmative action in American universities, and particularly in the Ivy League, you then suddenly discover, which I didn't know, that a very high proportion of people in the Ivy League are uh, people there in these universities because their parents uh, were there too and are big donors. And of course, the going to Harvard and Princeton, places like this, that's a gateway into the elite. So, of course, we've got a hereditary elite. We've not got a truly open one. This has always been true in a significant measure. But I think, as far as I can see, if anything, this is getting worse. Martin Wilson, my guest, who's uh, written a new book, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. And I'm going to ask him why you think this is all fixable, though. Uh, because, you know, um, you say, I, I don't despair, though you are pessimistic. Do we know how to fix this? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, I mean, I think saying, I know some people write books which sort of say, well, this is what's going to happen and we're going to end up back in an ossified oligarchy or, uh, or a dictatorship. And that's it, nothing you can do about it. But I really don't want to write that. I think the answer is, to, to me, and I mean it quite honestly, that everything is to play for. Uh, the in the the world and uh, in the West, which I particularly focus upon. We're very clearly seeing the rise of demagogues. We're seeing the demagogues who are putting forward policies which have nothing to do with making people better off, with improving the welfare of our populations, but everything to do with cheap gimmicks like Brexit, uh, very dangerous Brexit uh, gimmicks, or or hatred, or you know, the war on woke and all the rest of it, which is a sort of culture war against people you don't much like. 
So there are real dangers. But I think it's also obvious that lots of people do want something better. It won't be easy. It will be difficult. And it's about mobilizing. But to, to give you an example, I am encouraged that Boris Johnson has been found out. He has been thrown out. Nobody really regrets this. He was obviously totally irresponsible. It's not clear that his successors will really do a better job, but they are, I think, relatively decent people. And I think the basic traditions of democracy in Britain are just about okay. But I'm very worried about America. I'm very worried about what will happen if Donald Trump gets re-elected, which could happen. I'm very worried about what's happening in other big and important countries like India and Turkey and, and France. It's quite possible that a neo-fascist will be the next president. So it's a battle. We have to recognize this battle and we have to bring together uh, policies, which I discuss at great length, and, and reforms, I think, also politics, which allow the, the great democratic experiment to survive. Well, you say elites have to become trustworthy again, which is an interesting phrase. There has to be overt loyalty to institutions. There's the value of open debate, which we mustn't lose, and a, a, con a concern that fellow citizens can aspire to a full life. These are the three sort of elements that you, you think a good citizen needs to display. Yes, I think that's right. What we've been engaged in producing a free and democratic society is a tremendous and heroic thing to do. In large countries, it's sort of unprecedented. And we created this in the course of the 20th century after winning some very important wars, hot and cold. And But it's always fragile. And we have to remember that democracy is a, a society of citizens. That's what the Greeks said, the founders of the democratic idea in the West. Um, for a democracy to function, you have to have citizens. And they, the citizens have to be both the rich and the poor. They, everybody has to feel that they are part of a whole, which is more important to them than their factional loyalties. This loyalty to the whole must override their factional loyalties. And for that to happen, they must identify with and feel trust in um, all the other elements of their society. And if you don't have that, democracy turns into a civil war. And look, a final uh, little observation you make about the inscription at the Temple of Apollo in Delphi, never too much. Um, I think maybe does that sum up your sense that there's really there has been a sort of a, a flight to excess in acquisition, in acquiring and money and so on? Is, is that really at the core of what bothers you? Well, it's nothing in excess, strictly, but that's more or less the same thing. A, a good society is a society of balance. It balances different elements, individual enterprise and a responsibility to everybody. Uh, the need for expertise and hierarchy is inevitable, along with an, a real importance of giving everybody a voice. So it's about balance. And there is no solution which consists of only satisfying one objective. You have to recognize we have multiple objectives, all of which are valid, and uh, a good society balances them. And that's why I think this Greek motto and the Greeks had this motto for a very good reason, because they were prone to excess, uh, is so important. And if everybody wants total victory for the thing they really care about and everybody else must be defeated, democracy won't survive. Martin Wolf, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Great pleasure. 
Martin Wolf, the Chief Financial Columnist for the Financial Times and author of The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. It's published by Alan Lane. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.